The following podcast contains explicit language. So this is the show and the program today. We're going to be talking about uh, masturbation, I suppose, something most of you guys probably know. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today, as always, are New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of the Gut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. We got a great show for you this week, but first we'd like to talk to you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. Um, We'll be ending our episodes every week with responses to questions you ask or things you want us to talk about. Sometimes your voicemails point us um, in a direction we hadn't really thought about, which is the case this week. We're going to be talking about something called Rule 34, which I'd never heard about, and whether our imaginations can ever be more perverse than the Internet's. Please call us anytime, 646-494-3590. We love hearing from you. Today's interview is with Nicholas Tanna, the writer and director of Sticky, A Self-Love Story, a documentary about the myths and stigmas of masturbation. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk about um, sort of the biggest thing in sex news this week, which was the finger emoji that Amber Rose tweeted in a weirdly, I was like half homophobic sex put down of Kanye or something. A little bit. Basically, if you were like on the internet or near the internet or near a person who used the internet yesterday, there was the Kanye West Wiz Khalifa beef, which... Kanye thought that Wiz Khalifa tweeted something derogatory about Kim Kardashian because he used the initials KK. Really, he was talking about the Khalifa Kush that he like grows and smokes. But Kanye, being the big this story, baby, by the way, just like touches all of your favorite. I don't like emojis, emojis, butt stuff. It's Amber <laughs> Rose. It's great. I'm so excited. Um, so. Kanye, being the baby he is, overreacted to this thing that Wiz did not do and went on like a 20 tweet rant about um, like what a like a wiener Wiz was. I think he said I, I ethered Wiz was his like summation of the fight. But in there, he, he did praise his pants. Though. He did. He did take a moment to praise Wiz's cool pants. <laughs> Hashtag Wiz, you have cool pants. Um but in there, he does what Kanye always does and somehow managed to bring up Amber Rose and somehow managed to slut shame her somewhere around like tweet four or five. And Amber Rose is... is, is Amber Rose is a stripper turned like hip hop star turned feminist activist um, who both Kanye and Wiz at one time dated and at one time seriously slut shamed in very public and derog- like, terrible ways. I love Amber Rose. She's a hero. But Kanye Wiz can't... slut shamed her too? Yeah, he did. But he apologized. Kanye, on the other hand, just keeps doing it like he's got some weird obsession with her. Um, And in this exchange, he said something like, you were you were trapped by a stripper like your kid has you trapped for another 18 years. Good job. So we were all kind of waiting for Amber to weigh in, which she did. And the tweet said, ah, at Kanye West, are you mad? I'm not. I'm not around to play. You're blushing as you're. Wait, no, you're blushing. I like can't even really blush with my skin tone. But I'm doing <laughs> it. Okay, so she she tweets, "Ah, at Kanye West, are you mad? I'm not around to play in your asshole anymore." Hashtag fingers in the booty ass bitch with a little finger pointing up emoji as if she's inserting her finger into Kanye's butthole. Uh, it was pretty genius, I thought. Like, shut it down. Totally. Kanye didn't have a response, but like everyone on the internet loved it. But Maureen, you think that this is a butt-shaming moment. 
butt play shaming. Well, I have to say, I can never fault Amber Rose because after like the epic campaign of slut shaming, Kanye cannot let go of with her. Um, one moment of butt shaming is, you know, probably what he deserves. And yet, all I, I do have just like the tiniest piece of, you know, why does that make him a bitch? Is a man a bitch because he likes to get a finger inserted in his asshole? I think that that's a little, hmm, I'm not okay with that. But I disagree. I don't think that's what she was doing. I think she was just outing any sort of, like, personal sexual behavior that Kanye had that she knew about, right? Like, yeah, like that's fair. she could have been like, oh, Kanye, I'm not around to tug on your balls anymore. You said, like, it could have been anything, but I guess that was True. his one, like... Also, like maybe in the hip hop community, there is. Yeah, I think there's. A, I mean, like if she wasn't like, I'm not around to suck your dick anymore. Right. She did. She did pull out. A, she made a particular choice that of what she was going to reveal. That play. But I thought it was interesting the the Twitter responses that were like, you know, we think we're all cool with butt play, but like most people on Twitter were like, oh man, like I'd never let a chick go near my butt or like no butt stuff. Like there's a lot of anti butt rhetoric. Um, out there, I gotta say. Do you remember that epic media takeout post about um, the girl who like wrote to media takeout with this like ex- like long story about the time that about how much um, Drake lets likes his ass getting licked, which no. was like, <laughs> oh my god! I consider this this is interesting because in my mind, I'm like that was like the cultural touch point of like <laughs> 2015 or 14 or whatever year it was. No, in my mind, that was like a cultural moment about rim jobs. Although, of course, you know, these are things that strike me as like history-making moments that nobody else actually notices. Like, put Um, that in a NASA time capsule. That's so definitive. Do you guys think of like rim jobs and fingers in the asshole as like the same level of butt play, or is one a more advanced? I'm gonna say rim job is more advanced, and also like, like you need to know the person better. Like Uh a finger in the more intimate. It's more intimate. But I think like the most important element of all of this is that Amber Rose has rewritten what an emoji means. With one tweet, that finger pointing up will forever be associated with butt play. She's a real pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, I feel like a few months ago we were wondering about what, when and in what ways the sexual emoji like vocabulary could expand. Right. And we found it. We just have to find like more geniuses like Amber Rose to lead us along the way. <laughs> So we've been talking about Amber Rose's um, genius linguistic inventions. And now let's move on to our interview with Nicholas Tanner. I want to ask you something personal. But before I do... I want you to imagine that sitting next to you is your mother or father, or maybe your grandparents. Okay. Are you ready? Here goes. Do you masturbate? If you have a hard time answering, you're not alone. I've spent over seven years interviewing anyone I can get my hands on, from educators to porn stars to sexual revolutionaries, even a former Surgeon General on topics ranging from history to politics to health and education. Or lack thereof. He was bullied so badly over that video that he committed suicide. I've done this in order to understand a question that has bothered me for years. Why is something most everybody does so hard to talk about? So we're joined now by Nicholas Tana, Director of Sticky, A Self-Love Story. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks for having me, guys. 
the first question I wanted to ask is, I, I think you say in the doc that it, you were working on this thing for seven years. So what possessed you to like dive into masturbation for seven long, lonely years? <laughs> well, there's worse things to, to dive into. But, um, <laughs> but, but I would say it really didn't start off knowing that it would take that long. When I started with the subject matter, I, I didn't realize there'd be this much to it. And then as I did uh, more research, more interviews with other people, more sexperts, I came to discover that this is quite a subject matter with, with a sordid history. And it's still evolving today with the way we're going towards technology and the evolution of sexual experiences. And did you sort of think at the start that it would be the hybrid of like a bit of your story and a bit of sociology, a bit of um, sexology? Or did you, did you want it to be more personal? Did you want it to be more research driven? How did you imagine it at the start? And, and why did you feel like chasing the subject? Well, to start, actually, I wanted it to be the history or, or, or sort of a research on society and everyone in general, people in general's experience with sexuality and masturbation being the most fundamental for many people, the, the first sexual experience. And then as I explored further, I realized I was holding back by not putting myself in the narrative and that a number of documentaries that I appreciated most tended to have a personal B storyline, so to speak, throughout. And there was a sort of subconscious reason why I didn't put myself in the story, and I didn't realize that till well into making of the documentary, I'd say about three or four years in. And that was an experience I had early, just prior to entering high school, latter part of middle school, where a number of middle school students were joking about masturbation. And I made the mistake of admitting during the joking that I did it. And their reaction to that was stunned and, and didn't even confront me for a while about it. And then the next thing I know, rumors were spreading and there was this sort of outcasting mentality because apparently none of them actually did it. They just joked about it. So, Or I would say probably more likely they were just, they, they were all doing it, but they were eager to like have you as a whipping boy, right? right. There you go. I was being facetious, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then it wasn't until well into the project that I realized I sort of buried that and the filmmaking process was sort of a vindication for that experience and, and a real deep-seated curiosity as to why is something that most everyone does so hard to talk about. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think there is so much shame around it and or if not quite shame, then sort of discomfort about talking openly about something that so many people do in an age of general sexual liberation? Well, it's a complicated answer, to be honest, and that's hence the movie. But I can highlight some of the insights I've discovered, and that would be primarily our vulnerability around something so personal as masturbation and and sexual pleasure. Because part of that is our fantasies and our notions of ourself and our ego and what we, we find pleasurable and and whether we're deserving or capable of love. And that's so intrinsically tied into our ideas of ourselves that this becomes so personal. It's true. As I was watching your, um, your, your movie, Nick, I kept on thinking about how masturbation is so, like, maybe the only or one of the only acts that 
you sort of come upon instinctually, like you don't learn how to do it necessarily, or maybe some people learn how to do it. Um, as you know, it's the case of those who say, take a Betty Dodson seminar on how to masturbate as a woman. But for most people, it's like you learn how to do this thing by pure instinct with the door shut, with your eyes shut. Um, I remember I once interviewed somebody who described it as you're so turned off, like you're turned off to the world that you're then turned on by yourself. It, there is an element of privacy to that, for most people anyway, but also, if you think about it, if every one of us know what it's like to experiencing that, and then there's fantasies that get involved, well, then there's also crossing a line in your fantasy. So we've interviewed psychiatrists and, and, and therapists about whether it's healthy or not healthy to fantasize while you're in a relationship or, or a, a monogamous one or a marriage, and you fantasize about cheating on your spouse or your lover. And is that good or bad or healthy or not for a relationship? And, and we get various opinions on that. So it truly does have a sort of sticky subject mentality. And then the question is, do those fantasies w that come along with masturbation, do they kind of fuel the fire or do they ha kind of assuage desire, you know, so that we don't have to go do that? And, and that's a question amongst uh, people in prisons and, and in, in military and in situations where maybe they don't have access to sex and, you know, is masturbating kind of releasing that tension or is it fueling the fire? And how much does that depend on what you're masturbating to? Yeah, one of the most interesting segments in the movie to me was sort of towards the beginning. You had this almost like comparative sexology talking to a bunch of people from a bunch of different religious backgrounds about the, um, the you know, sort of the place of sexual shame and masturbation in, that, in their culture. And actually, we've got a little bit of that segment from the film to play. From a Buddhist perspective, the question of masturbation has to do with, well, what's our intention? Does masturbation bring us closer to reality? Look at the nature of desire and see if it really brings you the happiness you seek or not. Based on the Quran and the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, masturbation is classed as a minor deviation because the person is not uh, harming anyone else. In that case, according to the Quranian laws, he has chosen a lesser evil. In the Jewish tradition, not so clear-cut, masturbation is not listed among the negative commandments, but mistakenly people believe that masturbation is condemned in the Torah. That is not accurate. I always think of sexual shame, at least going back to Freud, as being attributed to our sort of like um, Judeo-Christian legacy. And I was interested to think about why and how people in other parts of the world with other traditions would be coming at masturbation with sort of similarly conflicted feelings. I mean, maybe not quite as uncomfortable as um, those in the West have, but not totally comfortable either. Yeah, I was surprised when I did r research and interviews with representatives from four major religions. And what was surprising was the very various opinions as to whether it was a sin or not. And it seems like with Buddhism, as I understand it, there really isn't a concept of sin per se. So in that sense, it wasn't a sin, but I think the, the monk said it wouldn't necessarily lead to enlightenment, or he didn't know, to be honest. So he, it was really open-ended. The uh, rabbi said in, in some instances it's, it's not a sin, and he seemed to be pretty open about it. But, but in other instances it is. I think there's a distinction between the Talmud and the Torah, you know, as to whether it's a sin. And that has to do with whether it's man-made laws or God laws. And and so there's some conflict there, actually. And then, um, and then with the Catholicism, the priest, at least I spoke with, was very adamant about how there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It's a sin. Whereas the imam from Islam 
basically said it was a lesser sin. So there were levels of sin. So, for instance, if you were to rape someone and you masturbated instead of doing, committing that heinous act, it was less of a sin to masturbate. So, so I thought that was interesting, the, the difference between that and the priest, where it was just a sin is a sin is a sin, so to speak. And how, does that, you know, how is that inculcated in our societal views on sex in general, and how does that affect our feeling about ourselves when we're sexual or we think a sexual thought? It's, it's very fascinating. Yeah, and I, I mean, I always think like, oh, fuck, like how unlucky it is that we've been saddled with all of this, like, you know, bullshit sexual repression from all these like <laughs> centuries of Christian tradition. But it's it's just interesting to think that it goes back even deeper than that. And it could be our, our discomfort around this stuff um, is, yeah, like more universal, more animal even, um, which I think has something to do with the privacy issues you were talking about. But I also wanted to ask you, is it fair to say that Pee Wee Herman is like the hero of this movie? I feel like I was like... <laughs> That was like that was like the highlight for me was that little time capsule of um, his incredible trial by fire in the 90s, which we don't think of as like, um, you know, an awfully backward time. And I think we got a clip of the Paul Rubens bit of the movie to play for you. 1991, July 26. Paul Rubens, on all accounts, was in Sarasota, Florida, visiting his parents. His hair's long. He's got a beard. He's not looking like a peewee. Pee-wee's Playhouse had actually just wrapped. The series was actually officially over. Anyway, he's in the porn theater watching this triple feature, and then the cops come in. Freeze! Come back! That's when I decided to take the law into my own hands. What else are people doing in those theaters? He's in an adult theater touching himself, and he should do this somewhere else? Isn't that what those places are for? And if the media hadn't made a circus out of it, no one would have been the wiser. We were having so much fun! After his arrest and that photo of him made the rounds, um, his career was basically ruined. If the internet had been as big then as it was now, this would be a viral phenomenon. And of course the issue was our antipathy toward masturbation, but more importantly, our terror around childhood sexuality. People really took this seriously. Like this was really a shameful, ridiculous thing. Nobody wanted to support peewee products. All of these sponsorships got lost, all this big thing, because he jerks off. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting that I discovered in, in doing research on that is that Paul Rubens, or Peewee Herman, it was arrested four or five days, I think it was four days during the same week for sure, in the same year, as to when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. Right. And Dahmer's first arrest was masturbating in public. Every time a serial killer is arrested, it's like, what did we do wrong? How could we have stopped this monster sooner? So there was this, I think the zeitgeist was, let's stop these perverts. So it very well could have influenced the extent to which law enforcement was after someone who worked on a show around children. And so they just went right after him. As to whether Rubens is a hero, I, I, I felt like <laughs> I wanted to show that what was done to him was extreme. And I felt like he was scapegoated. And it must have been a horrible experience for him. It's interesting also just to think of how different the porn culture is now that like we just have a much more forgiving view towards someone who was watching porn right. in 2016 than we did in 1991 when it – I mean I was I was only nine I guess but it like – and so I didn't really understand. But I definitely un, like sort of processed it as he was like a pervert, like a sort of dangerous pervert. But he was just watching like a normal porno. Right. I imagine that porn consumption must have just been so fundamentally different in an era yeah, where totally. you have to go to a public place to do it or this like weird quasi public but don't look around too much environment, I would imagine. I guess I don't really know since 
You're not familiar with the porn theaters of Sarasota, Florida? (laughs) Come on, don't lie. (laughs) And the shame. No, no, but really, I think what you're touching upon is interesting in lieu of where we're going with technology, too. Basically, we're blurring the lines between what is sex and what is masturbation. If you're sitting in your own room and you're having an orgy experience with a number of other people, but you're by yourself, is that sex or is that masturbation? And if your wife or husband catches you, <laughs> who gets half? You know? So how is this going to affect the laws and, and, and our notions of what is monogamy and our concepts of what is sex? versus masturbation in the future, it's, it blows me away, to be honest. If you reach the point where, say, having sex alone in your room, like if we imagine these sort of like high-tech versions of masturbation um, that turn into some kind of like virtual reality sex, if that were to really work, then I really think that romance would come back to the world because you no <laughs> longer need to go on Tinder to get laid. Like the only reason to exit your home is to truly fall in love. If masturbation becomes so great that it's like, as good or better than all regular sex. That's such a sweet sentiment, Maureen. Am I such a cynic that I'm like, oh, if the like, the masturbation was that good, then like, why would I fall in love with another human being? <laughs> <laughs> well, the only reason you ever would would be you truly love their mind and soul because you don't need them to have the most mind-blowing orgasm of your life, right? I just feel like I'd never leave my room. Well, I think we're <laughs> reducing the power of sex Slightly. I think sex is an extremely powerful force. If you go back to Freud, he believed it was a motivator behind most anything, but, uh, which I think is a little extreme too. But I think it is a very powerful force. It's a creative force. It's the creative energy behind procreation. Um, but if you think about it, that's, it's not necessarily the be-all and end-all. There are a lot of people now who claim to be asexual. So I think, I think there's more to a relationship and by you know just thinking that the sexual feeling or the good feelings that you'll get from any kind of masturbatory experience, be it technological or be it just you sitting in your room, is maybe an exaggeration. And I think that fear, though, just the mere fact that you guys are bringing that up, is part of the reason throughout history why masturbation is the world's most popular taboo. Because there is this subconscious fear around taking it too far. And, uh, and, and I think even back in the day when the number in your tribe meant survival, there was this fear that by masturbating too much, it's almost this narcissistic at- attraction to it that we'll have no need to procreate. Therefore, our tribe is going to get wiped out. We won't be as pop. That population will be smaller and there won't be as many of us. I was actually kind of stunned by there were a couple people in your documentary um, when you're asking people about sort of frequency of masturbation or sort of the how far masturbation could go. There was some like actually stunning levels of how many times somebody had made themselves come by themselves and that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Joe Matt is a famous, well-known comic book artist, and he makes no no bones about it. Like in his peep show comics, he talks about his addiction towards masturbation and and sort of this addiction to pornography. Maybe we can hear a clip of Joe talking in the film. My name's Joe Matt. I'm an autobiographical comic book artist. A recurring subject matter for me is masturbation and porn addiction. I have two books, The Poor Bastard and Spent. Spent is very focused on compulsive masturbation and porn addiction. Well, I wanted to see if I could do it 20 times in a row, have 20 orgasms in a row, just to see if I could. I'm a compulsive masturbator. I have no motivation to keep doing it, but I could keep doing it, uh, you know, after a little, little rest, you know, a little rest, I could do it again. 
usually pretty soon. It's not a big deal. You know, a lot of people, even Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks, comments on how 20 times a day is taking a bit too far. And that's, that's the, you know, punk rock, famous punk rocker who doesn't seem to follow many rules. So, so it's interesting to find those boundaries and how much is too much for you. And then when we talk to uh, psychologists and psychiatrists as to what that is, you've got various opinions too. Some that think beyond two or three times a day you might need an antidepressant and others thinking that that's absolutely fine. I mean, beyond two to three times a day suggests you're using that instead of an antidepressant, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You don't need an antidepressant if you're coming that many times a day. (laughs) Hey, the taboo around this makes it difficult to study, though, to be honest. So the more shame we feel around it, the less accurate our studies are going to be when you start taking surveys of people. Well, can you imagine a sort of post-taboo masturbation culture? Like, what does it look like to you if we get past our inhibitions about it? How, like, what, what would be an ideal, a utopian masturbatory vision? Well, a couple of things. Matthew Burdett, who was allegedly caught masturbating in his high school stall, this was in, in the San Diego school, and then afterwards the student put it on a vine. And whether he was doing it or not, it's not necessarily clear, but the fact that he was allegedly doing it, and that's what went round, it led to such shame that uh, he felt outcasted. And shortly after that, Burdett wound up committing suicide on Thanksgiving night. This was like three years ago. And so that's an extreme example of the shame that still exists today around this subject. In an ideal world, this movie would be out, dialogue would be out. It wouldn't be a big deal in high schools. And, and as we become, as the world becomes such where any scarlet letters are quickly going to be out there for all of us to bear indefinitely on the Internet, then we will come to terms with what we have formerly considered a shame and not have that, and we wouldn't see such extreme reactions to and such tragedies. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Now voicemails. Uh, this week we got one from you that is not exactly a story or a question, but um, we want to play it for you anyway and then talk about it. Yes, uh, the newest episode, you did not mention Rule 34, which you were talking about fetishes. So Rule 34 is something that I thought would be something that you all would have talked about. I missed hearing it. Good episode. Thanks, dude. Uh, <laughs> do you guys want to explain, uh, explain to me at least what Rule 34 is? I guess everybody else knows. But... I have no idea okay, what it is. First of, all, <laughs> Maureen. first of all, David, when you say you've never heard of Rule 34, you edited an article I wrote that had Rule 34. Did I really? I don't know what that says about our relationship as an editor and a writer or what. But yes, it was in um, the article about porn because um, Rule 34 is a rule that gets talked about, sort of a 4chan, Reddit, there was a webcomic that mentioned it. It's sort of unclear exactly what the inception was, but Rule 34 of the internet is, if it exists, there is porn of it. No exceptions. Such that absolutely anything, it's almost like like the existential argument of pornography today, that anything is... Or the, the many worlds, it. it's like quantum physics, many worlds theory. Exactly. For our geekier listeners. <laughs> 
Yes, and I do think this is a good point. And um, I once had this um, ongoing fight with a friend about, where he's like, you know you've reached the, like, the depths of depravity when you try the rule 34 and you can't find the thing you want to find. This particular friend was like, all I've ever wanted to see is gay clowns fucking each other. And in fact, he's like, it's not on the internet. But then within like five minutes of G-chatting each other, we actually found it. So... Huh. Yeah, you know, I do feel that if if I really tried, I probably could find something there wasn't porn of on the internet. But I think in doing so, I'd probably like break laws or something with the type of porn I'd have to get to to find it. So I have not actually tried. I'm just not that creative. Like I can't, like my mind cannot come up with anything close to what would not exist. Okay, like dragons fucking with snot. I feel like I already did it right there. Dragons, snots, porn. Oh my God, doesn't if you, exist. If you find that. Oh my God. <laughs> Is there dragon snot porn? There might be. Um, apparently there is a there urban is. dictionary sex act called the Alaskan snow dragon. So you know what? Fuck. I Pretty might much. Be wrong. <laughs> um, it involves ejaculation, not snot though. So I think I just won the game. That was quick. Debunked yeah. rule 34 in like half a second. Or we just discovered like a business opportunity for a new porn production <laughs> studio. True. Although by saying it, have we now made it exist? Because by me saying dragon snot porn, everybody's envisioned dragons fucking with snot. And right now, like we're having dragon snot phone sex. I would love to stop having this conversation. <laughs> so that's it for Sex Lives this week. We'll get to some of your voicemail, some more of your voicemails next week. And a reminder that you can always reach us at 646-494-3590. This week, we'd like to know about what your earliest experiences with masturbation were growing up and maybe some myths that you heard about it or some, if possible, some shaming that you experienced. Thanks to Nicholas Tanda for joining us. Um, Sex Lives is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you guys next week week and thanks for listening.